Good afternoon. My name is Craig Barnes. I serve as the president of Princeton Theological Seminary. It's my honor to welcome our trustees, members of our faculty, student body, and the administration of the seminary, as well as our many friends of the seminary who are gathered here this afternoon. And after over two years in which it's been difficult to gather, it's a delight to welcome you all back and to welcome the Princeton community back into our library. Greetings also to the many hundreds who join us today from all over the world via live stream. We're happy to have you as an important part of this event. Over the course of our seminary's 211 years, we have long sought to galvanize wider reflection on the implications of Christian faith for public life. We did not always get that right. As the historical audit on Princeton Seminary and slavery underscores. But even as we continue on a journey of repentance for our past sins and its continuing legacy, our mission today calls us to engage Christian faith with intellectual, political, and economic life in pursuit of truth and justice, compassion, and peace. And so it is fitting during this season of momentous challenge for this country that we are gathered here for a conversation about the future of American democracy. Today's conversation will focus specifically on the challenge of polarization, which is substantial in our society today. One not need be nostalgic about the past to be daunted by this present situation. Republicans and Democrats alike increasingly see members of the other party as not just wrong on key issues, but according to the Pew Research Center, as immoral, dishonest, close-minded, a threat to the nation's very well-being. Things have been worse. Americans did fight a literal civil war. But even such historical perspective brings only modest relief when we learn that today more than half of young Americans feel democracy is either in trouble or failed. And more than a third believe there could be another civil war in their lifetime. Princeton Seminary is not impervious to these dynamics of polarization and conflict, of course. But in a society that feels on too many days like it's all coming apart at the seams, we continue to strive to find ways to bring people together. Our campus community encompasses students from 62 different Protestant denominations, hailing from 21 different countries over five continents. 
It includes people from a diverse array of racial, ethnic, class, sexual, and gender identities. People whose theological and political orientations are conservative, centrist, progressive, radical, and many shades in between. About the only thing we have in common on this campus is a shared Christian faith. As I mentioned, we are both Protestant and Roman Catholic, coming from a variety of different perspectives on this Christian faith. But amid all of our differences, Jesus Christ is the one true center here. And it has long been my deep conviction that this center will hold. If I'm honest, it doesn't always feel that way during the trials of a given day or a given week. And our language about being a diverse covenant community will always be aspirational. But we still not only have much to learn, we have learned along the way and we do have also wisdom to share. I have every confidence that we will both learn and share this afternoon. This event is part of a year-long series which has been generously underwritten by our trustees. We're very grateful to them, as well as for the time and energy of the members of the administration and staff who worked very hard to produce tonight's event including Catherine Ahmed, Amy Ellen, Bill Braun, Thais Carter. We're thankful to the library staff for their flexibility and also for the artifacts that they have pulled together, which you can find just to my left, your right, as you uh, exit this afternoon. And we express our appreciation to the many students whose studies we are disrupting by closing the library for this event. I hope uh, they are as a result here then as part of the event. But we are especially grateful to Professor Heath W. Carter for his vision, his leadership, and his convening of this event, as well as the ongoing series of conversations we're having throughout the year on the future of American democracy. Dr. Carter serves as our moderator for the panel tonight. He is the Associate Professor of American Christianity at the seminary, as well as the Chair of the History Department and the PhD Studies. Dr. Carter teaches and writes about the intersection of Christianity and public life in the modern United States. His current book project is entitled, On Earth As It Is In Heaven, Social Christians and the Fight to End American Inequality. As I continue to introduce our panelists, Jane Koston is the host of the New York Times podcast, <coughs> The Argument. Her writing has been featured in publications ranging from the National Review to ESPN Magazine. 
and she is an ABC News contributor. Peter Meyer was elected to the United States House of Representatives in 2020 to represent Michigan's third district. He serves on the Committee of Homeland Security as the ranking member of the Subcommittee on Oversight, Management, and Accountability. He also serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. Representative Meyer is also a proud member of the Problem Solvers Caucus, a bipartisan group working to find common ground on many of our country's key issues. Simone Sanders Townsend is an author, seasoned Democrat strategist, and host of Simone on MSNBC and MSNBC on Peacock. She rose to prominence in 2016, becoming the National Press Secretary for U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign. She went on to serve as a senior advisor to President Joe Biden's 2020 presidential campaign, and then as the deputy assistant to the president and senior advisor and chief spokesperson to Vice President Kamala Harris. And with those introductions, Dr. Carter, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Craig. It is so exciting to be here with you all. We've been looking forward to this event and to this uh, excellent panel. Just a, a few announcements, uh, and I want to just give uh, just a few thoughts before we dive in. One, if you haven't uh, silenced your cell phones, please do that at this point. You may well need them because uh, the way we're doing the Q&A today, whether you're in the audience here in person with us or on live stream, we're using slido.com. Uh, it's a website you can enter your questions in. There's a code in your program or in the chat online. Uh, you can use that code and, and, and type in your questions at any point during the panel discussion and when we get to the Q&A time, uh, some of those questions will be uh, brought to bear uh, with our panelists. I just want to share briefly my hope for this series as a whole. Um, why do a series here at Princeton Seminary on the future of American democracy? Um, for me, it's because I think for countless Americans, uh, the very idea of Christianity in the public square has come to mean something arrogant and exclusionary. I think these associations are really understandable given the developments of recent years, but those are developments which I especially add as a historian that have deep roots in the longer history of American Christianity. But I also know there are a lot of folks out there today who are hungry for a different way. And the good news is that our tradition has resources. And my hope is that Princeton Seminary through this series and so much of the other things sort of happening on this campus and beyond can be a place that connects folks to those resources, even as we radiate in our own public engagement a joyful, generous, justice-seeking Christian faith. 
And we do this for the sake of the renewal of church and society alike. That's at the very core of our mission. So I see this series as really related uh, to the very core of what we're up to here. My hope is that each conversation in this series, including this one, uh, will be broad, stretching to include a wide variety of voices and perspectives. That it will be fair. I want to encourage people to be fully themselves. And I want to promise uh, in return to take them seriously and to truly listen to what they have to say. My hope is these conversations will be illuminating, bringing to light both shared values and deep differences between participants. And finally, my hope is that these conversations will be oriented toward truth. There's a lot of money to be made these days on lies. There's a lot of clicks to be gained through gotcha sound bites. But my hope is that in this space, we can lean into critical, thoughtful, informed conversation that helps folks to gain new clarity about the way forward. So that's why we're here, and I couldn't be more delighted to be here with these three fine folks who we've already sort of started talking, and, and I can't wait to continue this conversation. I wanna, I wanna start our conversation with a question for Jane. Uh, Jane, as many of you know, is uh, the host of a podcast called The Argument. I think she, uh, she planned this out this week. <laughs> this week's episode, we've already been talking about it, is on uh, the likelihood, a debate about the likelihood that there could be a civil war um, in our lifetime. Um, the thing I'm really interested in about the podcast, and I want to invite Jane to kind of speak to, is the format and the approach, which uh, those of you who haven't listened to the podcast, The Argument is a podcast where uh, there's an issue on the table in any given episode, and Jane, you bring people together who disagree. Mm -hmm. And there's debate, and there's disagreement, and one of the things I notice as I listen to you is you really take people seriously, um, including people I imagine you personally likely deeply disagree with. Um, right now, we're, we're living in a country where people are moving away, literally moving away from people they disagree with, we shop in different places, we go to church in different places. So I think there's a lot of, of questions about the value of this sort of, of setup. Is there really value in getting together and debating and, and disagreeing and, and trying to hash things out in this kind of conversation? Um, so I'd love to hear you speak to, what do you see as the value in, in bringing people together to, to, to disagree and to debate? And, I, and I'm also curious just whether, to what extent your faith draws you into that kind of conversation? Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. And I'll actually take your second question first. Hmm. Um, I was raised Catholic, um, 13 years of Catholic school. Um, I've been embedded deeply in my faith for all of my life. And one, one thing that I think has been really important in that is that with faith comes debate inherently. Hmm. Um, if you have 12 Catholics in a room, you have 11 people arguing and one person attempting to get through the parish committee meeting. <laughs> um, and so I think that that debate has always come with it, with knowing that I had my faith as a bedrock, but knowing that basically everything else could be questioned. Mm. And you see that throughout scripture. Um, you see Christ himself even asking like, why can't this cup be taken from me? Why mm. does this have to happen? And you see debate and argument throughout both the Old and New Testament as people were steady in their faith but had a lot of questions about everything else mm. as people tend to do so. 
And so I think for me, I wanted the argument to be a place where people could ask those questions knowing that the thing that brought us together was acting in good faith. Hmm. But I, I want to go back to the first question, which hmm. is that the point of my show is not that we would come together and hold hands and find like the exact median opinion and be there, hmm. because that doesn't exist on a host of issues. Hmm. Um, I think occasionally in our politics, um, we wrongly, I would almost say fetishize this idea of like the center, the mm -hmm. bipartisan opinion that would almost certainly be correct. Mm. Well, one of my personal heroes is John Brown, mm. um, who stood against slavery and died for the cause of ending slavery, as Frederick Douglass uh, wrote later in 1881 that Frederick Douglass could live for the slave, but John Brown was willing to die for him. Mm. John Brown was not a centrist. John Brown was not a very good battle planner, but <laughs> he was not a centrist. <laughs> On a lot of issues, there is no easy center. Mm. Um, and I think that too often in our politics, particularly in political media, there's this idea that if we all just came together, there'd be a common sense solution. Mm. And I don't know if a lot of you know this, but there is no such thing as a common sense solution to most things. Mm. And so I wanted the show to be a space where it's not that we are coming together to figure out, you know, we're gonna take our opinion, divide by two, and that's the answer. Mm. The show is to show what each perspective looks like, force each perspective to take the other perspective seriously. Mm. Not that like, you know, you have this position purely to annoy me, um, which some, okay, some people have opinions purely to annoy other people, <laughs> but, you know, for a lot of these issues, there is not, you know, there isn't a perfect solution. Uh, one episode that we did was on the issue of sex work, mm. and we had a woman who, um, she had been a victim of human trafficking in the sex trade, and she was talking to a woman who is um, an adult film actress who said repeatedly, like, this is the best work I've ever done. And by the end of it, they had this moment of realization in which they had never met anyone who had the perspective of the other person. Hmm. They had met a lot of people who were like them or thought like them, but they had never had a chance to talk to each other. And by the end of it, they were exchanging phone numbers and hmm. talking about how like we clearly disagree on a lot of things, but there's, you know, this conversation could keep going. And I think hmm. that's what I wanted the show to be, something that wasn't trying to figure out like, you know, I'm, I don't believe, if you change your mind through a 45-minute podcast, I question your commitment to whatever <laughs> it was. Um, but I do think that this can be an opportunity where you understand, like, oh, I didn't know how someone could think that. And mm. then I heard it from this person, and I was like, eh, they're still wrong, but mm. I understand now. So I think, I think that's what my goal was. Mm. Are there, so I'm curious whether there are either questions or voices that you are like, yeah, I believe in this, I believe in this kind of uh, mm -hmm. conversation, but that's just too far. That's, that's outside the bounds. That's not a voice that I would be interested in. Well, it's challenging because I think that there are a couple of times in which we've either had conversations about wanting to do episodes where if we are debating, there are issues and there mm -hmm. are people and I want to debate issues. I don't want to debate people. Mm. At a certain point, there are certain issues in which it would be a person who says like, I am this person. And another person saying, well, I simply wish you weren't. That's not mm. really a debate that I, I'm willing to host. Mm -hmm. And I also think that there are people for whom, 
and this is, you know, entirely understandable in which you put issues to some people in one way and to other people in a different way. Mm. And I've had episodes in which I tried to call those people to account by saying, you know, you were talking about this to me in a very different way than you did to, you know, this conservative talk show host. And I wonder later if I'd really done my audience a service by even hosting that voice because I didn't think that if you're able, I think that there is a degree to which that type of salesmanship that I think is quite telling about what is behind mm. that messaging. And mm. so I think, but it's always a, it's always an interesting question because I think that um, there is this, I'm very hopeful that most people here don't spend a lot of time online, but um, <laughs> there is this kind of debate me culture where it's like mm. everything's debatable. You can question anything. Mm. But I think that when everything is debatable, then you kind of, you know, you lose a sense, like a, a moral core, a moral mm. spine. Mm -hmm. When you have people for whom everything is debatable, debatable, which in general, for even for those people, there's something that isn't debatable. Like mm. they want to debate about like race and IQ, but not their IQ. Mm. So I think that that's something that's always been important to, s to keep in mind, that we have a culture that, you know, mm. sometimes wants to mm. ask a lot of questions, but won't listen to the answers. Mm. And I mm -hmm. think that that's something I, I always am thinking about with the show. Yeah. I, I don't know if my mind works, yeah. but I think this is such an important point. Um, I host a show on MSNBC now, but I used to be a political commentator. And there is, are you all familiar with something called Politicon? Hmm. Okay, for the people that are up, there's the mic. Yeah. <laughs> for the people that are not familiar with Politicon, it's, it's like politics version of Comic-Con. So you mm. get all your political favorites from across the spectrum. <laughs> they come, there are panels, sometimes people dress up. Have you ever been to Politicon? I'm not. Okay, we will, get you a, we, will get, we will get you in the rotation, <laughs> Congressman. So I used to do Politicon a lot from its inception. And my first Politicon, I, uh, they asked me to participate in the conversation with Tommy Lawrence. Mm. Um, Google Tommy Lauren if you don't know who she is. Mm. And I said yes to the conversation. And we ended up having, there are, there are very few things I agree with her on. One of the things that we uh, could come to a consensus on, we talked about contraception and reproductive rights. Mm. She even had an interesting point on guns that I was like, you know, there are many black people in America that will agree with you. Mm. And then post that, Politicon was like, we want to take this on the road. And I was like, oh, honey, I don't, I don't, I'm going to need a lot of Xanax <laughs> if you want to go to Tommy Lauren every week. They were like, no, not Tommy Lauren, Milo Yiannopoulos. And I called my agents and I was like, who do y'all think I am? <laughs> there are many conversations that I am willing to have. I'm somebody who believes that we have to, um, you have to be able to be in conversation mm -hmm. with people whom you do not agree with. I don't mm -hmm. believe everyone should be a Democrat. I believe we need Republicans in mm -hmm. this country. We need independents. We believe people that think the system is a joke and you have to explain to them why. White supremacy is a line for me. Yeah. You know, like I, I believe we have to have a line. Mm -hmm. and in this day and age, I want to underscore the point Jane just made because particularly in our political media, somehow mm. a line on some places does not exist. Like we, we have to give credence to what the white supremacists think mm. or the people that uh, do not believe the Holocaust happened. And I just, I think that we have to have a line. Mm. And having a line is not being politically biased, it is having values and, and morals. Mm -hmm. And that is what guides me in politics. Yeah, yeah. Peter, I wonder, in, in your line of work, not, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm curious to what extent you find uh, opportunities, I mean, I know you're part of this bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus, I mean, 
Bipartisanship has not been uh, surging in popularity, I don't think, uh, <laughs> in recent years. So I wonder, I mean, what's, in what is it? periods in the general election, it's yeah. popular. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what, what is it like to try to do that kind of work? I mean, do you find that you really connect with Democrats in the House who are, you know, you're working with in this? I mean, and are those relationships that you build with folks on the other side of the aisle, are they of value in the work you're doing? You know, I'll say that, I mean, to, to Jane's earlier point on bipartisanship, you know, if one side is saying we need to build the bridge and the other side says we don't need to build the bridge and the consensus, you know, split the difference as you build the bridge halfway, <laughs> like that, that can result in the worst of all possible outcomes. Right. Uh, and I think one of the challenges is there are, there are opportunities to get some things done but just the, the power dynamics in the House with leadership, I mean, it's, it's difficult to really force something forward mm -hmm. um, uh, just on a practical side. But it is a very effective mechanism, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to think of the line from Super Troopers where like the, the local cops and the highway patrol are fighting. It's like, you know, you'd think because of mutual boredom you know, and professional <laughs> respect, we'd get along. And the moments in our Problem Solvers Caucus where someone's like, could we have the staff leave the room? And, the staff leave the room and then it just becomes a gripe fest and you know mm. Republicans complaining about Republican leadership Democrats complaining about Democrat leadership you know and it's like mm. we're not so different mm. <laughs> we're all complainers right? <laughs> and mutual it, loathing is a real bonding it is I mean that negative polarization it's is endemic true. in our political process right. but it can lead to some camaraderie on the margins which right, is productive exactly. Uh, but I mean, by and large, I mean, the challenge is, um, I think especially right now in DC is the bipartisan, it ends up being better than nothing, but not necessarily, but still working within the constraints and the inhibitions and the flaws of the system as it is. And, and uh, to Simone's point, uh, you know, there's a lot of frustration on both sides of the aisle. I mean, the, the you know, before Donald Trump was saying drain the swamp, Nancy Pelosi was saying drain the swamp. Like, you look at the ways in which there's kind of growing belief that our institutions are illegitimate and people making the same argument, citing exactly opposite, you know, uh, cases and, and evidence. And I think one of the challenges to grapple with, and I feel a very real responsibility on this, is a lot of our toxic partisanship and toxic politics, it doesn't create a dysfunctional government, but maladministration and, and incompetence in governing creates fertile ground for that toxic politics to arise, mm. while at the same time making it ever harder to address those underlying dysfunctional components. Mm. I, I want to Sorry, I was supposed to be more funny. You guys are like <laughs> wonderful and engaging, and I just go straight to black. <laughs> I want to talk about national politics because, I mean, one of the things that, you know, if I understand, you know, kind of the literature on polarization, I mean, partly one idea is that, you know, we have, we all have lots of identities. Um, and in the past, you know, you've been a member of a church, you've been uh, a soccer player, you've been a parent, and these kinds of identities have brought you into relationship with all kinds of different folks and including folks who you might uh, disagree with politically. But part of what seems to be happening right now um, is that the, the political identity, and in particular kind of national political allegiance, is kind of eating up these other identities and becoming kind of the mega identity that uh, is the kind of controlling identity in people's lives. And so I, I want to, I mean, I think this is partly related to what's going on with the two political parties. So I want to talk a little bit about um, 
First, the Republican Party. And, and Peter, I, I come to you on this. Uh, first, you, know, you, you made history at the beginning of your, your term by becoming uh, the first freshman member of Congress to, I think, ever uh, and only uh, vote to impeach a president of uh, their own party. Yeah, I learned that was a record like 12 months later. And I was like, oh, <laughs> cool. Um, I'd love to hear you just take us back briefly to that moment, and I imagine, I mean, I'm curious, was that a hard decision? What was it like? How did you make that decision? What caused you to, to cast that historic vote? This is a great question. I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it was, it was not, it was a hard decision because I knew it would be disappointing a lot of people, mm -hmm. right? And, and you can make a a legal argument, you can make a moral argument, an emotional argument, a political argument, and I would go to sleep thinking one thing, I would wake up thinking the other, and until I would kind of look myself in the mirror, I was like, ah, I'm gonna do this, and then it was like a calm, kind of washed over, mm. um, the, the eye of the storm, right? Mm. But, you know, I think there's a lot of focus among elected officials of like, well, what, you're running for office, you know, what is it you, why are you, why do you want that job? What is it you're trying to get out of that job? And a lot less focus on, well, what are you willing to lose the job for? Mm -hmm. And the way in which a lot of my colleagues, um, and, and there are, by the way, I'll just say there are a lot of people that when I got a chance to meet them, other members of Congress, I was like, wow, you are not an idiot. Like you just play one on TV, but you're really <laughs> insightful and, and sharp and intelligent. Um, not everybody, but you'd be surprised. Behind closed doors, there's a lot of closet normals. Um, but in that moment, it was that kind of question of, well, if I'm willing to tolerate this, if I'm willing to say, okay, um, and I mean, and there was some really gross politics on just the partisan side even leading up to that. There were some Republicans who were trying to draft uh, a more generic article of impeachment that was just dereliction of duty. Pelosi shut that down. She wanted something that would ensure kind of fewer Republicans would support it. Um, and so it was just kind of a, like, oh, you know, kind of thought all that hope and optimism and like things beyond politics. This is a moment where evening of January 6th, you know, 99%, uh, this was terrible, this was bad. Morning, well, was it wasn't really that bad. You know, afternoon, well, yeah, okay, it was bad, but, and then just sort of the equivocation and, and that sense of relativism. Right. Of, of just as soon as that creeping cynicism of, well, okay, well, this was bad, but so was that, or, well, they started it. And imagine if, and, and it's just, uh, that just disgusted me mm. completely. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my thought was, you know, if kind of selling, and I'm not saying that you, I have a lot of colleagues who didn't vote the way I voted and I respect the way that they voted, um, but it was not something I could have done and felt like I was being sincere to the reasons why I ran for office in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I mean, part of what we know is that most of the folks, there were 10 Republicans in the House that voted to impeach and eight of them have either retired or lost mm -hmm. in primaries. And so, I mean, you, you were quoted saying, I can't tell you the number of times someone said, you don't have to believe the election is stolen. The important thing isn't believing it, it's saying it. And if that, I mean, to the extent that that view, you know, has become a mainstream. Well, and, and let me just say, it's yeah. much more of a shibboleth than yeah. anything else. Yeah. It is a, you know, rebutting that 
because many of those same folks who want you to say it also don't believe it, but this is just sort of a sign that you're in the in-group. Yeah. You know, and that, um, I mean, I think, yeah, it's a sign that you're in the in-group. It's a sign that you're not going to rock the boat, that you're not going to kind of thumb your nose and, and kind of have the sense of arrogance of like, well, I know better than you, and, mm -hmm. and let me push my broken glasses higher up on my, the bridge of my nose and, mm -hmm. and go through all the details, which I've done far too many times. But, I mean, the challenge, and you talk about the isolation. Yeah. I mean, I have talked to plenty of people who just don't know or, or don't sort of publicly know, like a, a Trump voter that they can talk to and have a conversation with. Mm -hmm. And I, I talked to folks as well who, you know, one um, dear friend, she was like, listen, you can make all the arguments and, and I don't dispute any of the facts you're talking about, about the outcome of the election in terms of individual cases, right? Because, oh, it was stolen, okay, well, how? And blah, 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 you refute point by point. She's like, but, you know, I saw the energy at his rallies. Everyone I know, all the people on my social media feed, they all voted for him. Where are all these Biden voters, mm -hmm. right? And just the sort of never the twain shall meet, like it is um, stepping back from the emotion of it and just thinking what happens when we have just ships passing in the night. Mm -hmm. Just one follow up and then I, wanna, I have a question for Simone related to this. I mean, I think, you know, you, so you and your integrity felt you couldn't do anything other than what you did. And I mean, almost all of your colleagues um, saw it differently. And I, I guess part of what I wonder is, it, to the extent that this has become a test of you know, Republican identity, I mean, is there, given the way you see things, is there a road toward a, a, a healthier, I don't know what you know, adjective you would want to use, uh, a, a better Republican party? I mean, what does that look like? Is there the, the, the view that you had that caused you to vote to impeach? I mean, could you imagine a world in which that view was to, you know, be more prevalent in the party? I, my, my fundamental operate, because parties react based on incentives and they react based on political conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Simone, you are welcome to push back strongly on this one. <laughs> um, I will, I will. <laughs> but my, what I got most wrong in the wake of January 6th was I assumed that the constraining force on the Republican Party would be the political punishment for not reacting more strongly and, and for you know, basically allowing that to happen. But that was predicated on a stronger Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And I think whichever party, if, if the Republican Party is able to solve its personality problems or if the Democratic Party, and this is where you're welcome to push back, can solve its policy problems, you know, they can have a generational control. Mm -hmm. But the, the failure, each party kind of looking at the other and seeing them not dealing with their, their hobbling weakness isn't a, oh great, let's seize the opportunity. It's a, oh thank goodness, we don't need to do all that hard work and, and actually you know, fix things. We can just coast along. You know, it's not iron sharpening iron, it's a jello mold and another jello mold just kind of <laughs> mushing together. No. I must disagree. Please. I, I think we need, there could be more political parties in America, but frankly, people haven't done the work to create those parties. You just don't pop up right before a presidential and say, we are X party here, you gotta have you got to do the work on the states. You got to, where's your money? Where's your committees? So, you know, and I've told this to Andrew Yang directly. <laughs> so, I, I, I do think, though, it is important that people that stand up, look, Peter Mayer is an actual Republican. You know, he's not a fake Republican. He's a real Republican. He's a real conservative in America. And we probably disagree on policy about 95% of the things. 
But when it mattered, he stood up and took a vote against everything in his party that, told, that, that was telling him not to. And I think it matters that you support people that do that. And I think that the reaction from uh, one of the major party committees, and I've, I've said this on television multiple times, I will say it again here, mm. there are many ways you can spend the millions of dollars that we are raising. Using it to boost a crazy person mm. for the, for in a Republican primary mm -hmm. to oust a man that stood with you when few others would is insane. Mm. And as an operative, you have to make decisions about how and where you spend your money. I, I, I'm on record saying when they go low, you gotta go toe to toe. Where is your line? Yeah. And mm. for me, that was a line. I, I guess I will say in terms of like the political parties and the polarization, um, we, we cannot divorce from our political discourse um, that changing demographics, that race, that religion have a lot to do with our current political discourse in America. We cannot erase from the fact, this point that, you know, I listen to Jane's podcast, y'all better download the argument. <laughs> it is, what she said about debating issues and not people is key. Because throughout our political discourse over the last, I would argue, 10 years, we've, we've veered way, we've, we're in the middle of debating people. We are no longer just talking about, you know, what your stance is on inflation or the economy. We are, we, uh, there are two governors in America that are putting people who are fleeing violence and persecution who have come to our country to legally seek asylum on planes and flying them to places all across this country for, for political stunts. And to say the president's not doing anything about the border. Mm -hmm. That's not okay. Mm -hmm. And the moment that we get into a place where we're both sizing it, where we're trying to find the political validity of this stunt, mm -hmm. I, I just I think that adds to the polarization. And so mm -hmm. for someone like me, you know, um, oftentimes when I was on TV as a commentator once in the aftermath of Charlottesville, folks were like, literally on television, you always make it about race. Well, for me, every time I leave the house, I'm a black woman. Mm -hmm. I don't you know, people make, this, make assumptions about who I am, mm -hmm. what I do, where I went to school, what I believe, mm -hmm. based on what they see. Mm -hmm. Not knowing anything about me, not knowing that I, that I, that I grew up going to Catholic school mm -hmm. my entire life, not knowing that I'm from Nebraska, not knowing all of these things that inform who I am and what I believe. Mm -hmm. And that is the venue through which many people are engaging. There is, there is not a lot of this happening in America, not a lot of not a lot of you know, civil discourse mm. talking about the issue. Mm -hmm. Because in many places, we are not debating the issues. People are trying to debate people, the existence, the rights. Mm. And until we come to the realization that that is really where we are, we're not gonna get any further. We're not gonna be able to come together and have constructive conversation about the actual issues and get to a solution. We have to be honest with ourselves about what is happening. Yeah. And I haven't seen a plan from the Republican Party on inflation, on the economy. I have seen a plan to get rid of Social Security. I and guarantee take away you, Simone, <laughs> okay, you put us Joe in the Biden majority. Put us in the majority in the House and the Senate and the White House, and we'll take right care of it. I was thinking more about the polarization point, and I, I'm reminded of. Um, I, was, I, I have a friend, um, I started out as a sports writer, so I know a bunch of sports writers, and um, he hosts a podcast uh, for The Athletic, which is a New York Times property, great sports website, and he, um, he got a one-star review on the podcast, and the person was complaining about something, but he was like, I think most people are like me, and they would agree with me. And I was like, that's the most deranged sentence I've ever seen in my entire life. And I think so much of our politics and so much of political media, which is something I can speak to, 
is making the assumption that you, me, can speak for a broad constituency of Americans who see things the way you do. Mm. And you are playing towards um, this idea of normalcy. Not normal, like normalcy as in kind of like the median American. Mm. The problem is, um, the, there is no such thing as the median American. And so much of our ideas are projected outwards. Mm. Um, I think a lot about, uh, the New York Times makes available their archive. And if you go through the archive and look for the word homosexuality at the New York Times, up until about 1991, every article is about like, what can we do to fix them? What are we going to do? That is taking the New York Times as assuming based on its, what it thinks its audience is, that this is what the audience wants to hear about. Mm. And it's not thinking about whether or not like, you should be asking some questions about this mm. or thinking more deeply about it. Mm. And so I'm always struck by how so much of our polarization, you were talking about your, mm. you know, your friend's social media feed of like, everyone I know voted for Trump. And there was that apocryphal Pauline Kael quote about like, how did Nixon win? No one I know voted for him. Mm. She didn't actually say that for the record. <laughs> but, I think about that a lot, and I think that so much of my work starts from the stance of like, I like lots of things most people don't like. Mm. Like, I went to Catholic school and I was listening to a lot of new metal at the time, so like, <laughs> I'm pretty used to being the person who was kind of on the outside, and I understood that, and I understand mm. as someone, you know, I'm a, I, like, my, a lot of my politics are very much a kind of standing outside of how the two major parties see issues, but I think that, if, you, if we were better able to think of our politics as not being the norm or the median, mm. that our experiences are not what everybody else did. Mm. You know, I think about this a lot. You know, I live in DC, like when you live in a city and you see how sometimes Republicans talk about cities, you get so mad. And then I remember, you know, growing up in Ohio and seeing how, you know, living in Ohio and Michigan and Missouri, and you see how sometimes pe people report on like, there's a restaurant in St. Louis. <laughs> oh, they have restaurants there. And you're like, it turns out no one really likes seeing where they're from. Actually, everywhere in America can be kind of cool and mm. no one likes seeing themselves disrespected. And so mm. I think thinking about polarization and thinking about these issues from a media standpoint, I think that there needs to be a better way of not being, of attempting not to do this we are the normal median looking out upon the world mm. and thinking more about like, wow, there's lots of different ways to be an American. And I think we should try and reflect as many of those as possible mm. or else we're going to keep being confused by like, Latinos are voting for Republicans. <laughs> mm. yeah. What? Mm -hmm. Like there, it, you see this over and over again. It's just like people being stunned of, um, of Americans every day. Mm. Mm -hmm. I mean, the. But the way you get there is you have to have people in front of and behind the camera in charge of and mm. writing for a podcast network and news and newspaper executives who fundamentally understand that point. Mm. And uh, I now host a show on MSNBC. Obviously, I've been a guest. I've been a commentator uh, in my roles when I worked for campaigns. I was um, in, in conversation with. Mm -hmm. um, and it is... Many people don't understand that point. And I think it's because 
my husband and I often talk about this, that people don't, lots of people don't actually know any real people. Yeah. They, they know, they know the, and they don't. Like people at the highest places in these levels, they, they don't they, know real they people. They have never met a normal store. person in yes. their life. Like the number of people, <laughs> like there was a, I can't remember, was it, I believe it more made of, been like George H.W. Bush, but there was something during a campaign where he was going to the grocery store mm -hmm. and he was trying to operate the checkout, and it was just like, oh, honey, you have never done this before. <laughs> but like, you see a lot of politics in which, um, and it, especially when people talk about like so-called kitchen table issues, mm -hmm. and it just like, you know, they let you have kitchen tables when you're gay too. Like, mm. you know, it's you know, it's in Obergefell. You can check at like, the second page <laughs> of the decision. We got tables too, but like. And I think so much about this of just like, it's, you know, the idea of what Americans go through is so, we put it through this prism of our social media feeds mm -hmm. when so much of that is performative. Mm -hmm. And in the social media feeds are like the bottom half of the top 2% yeah. arguing with the top half of yeah. the top 2%. Yeah. And the mismatch and disparity between social and cultural and political capital mm -hmm. and just reflectiveness of the country as a whole. Right, exactly. I mean, but you know, I, I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm sort of thinking about here as we're talking is to what extent uh, American democracy is really in crisis or not. And I mean, that's one of the things that, I mean, you were talking about on your show. Do you think week. it's debatable? I'm, well, I'm, I'm genuinely asking. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I, I think that, I mean, I'm hosting this series probably because I think, <laughs> I think we, really, we really need to be thinking about it, right? Um, but I am struck, I mean, so President Biden last month in Philadelphia gave this speech about, you know, he said, Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. But then, as you said, I mean, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee spent $425,000 to elevate the profile of John Gibbs in Because in they the race. thought they could beat him. Yeah, but that's a, that's a huge... That's a, isn't that playing with fire? I mean, if, if we're really talking about threats of democracy, and I mean, Jane, I'm thinking about this with, with the Times as well. I mean, a lot of frustration with the New York Times and my yeah. Twitter feed over the last five or six years as, uh, you know, continuing to um, cover politics, you know, in, in a way that maybe made sense in the past. I think, you know, a lot of the folks, the critics would say, where it's, you know, you have a Republican Party and a Democratic Party, and those are the two parties. And, and both sizing, as I think you know, one of you were saying, both sizing. I mean, so I wonder about like if if democracy is really in threat. Should the I mean, you've already said that is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee going to continue to do this? I mean, the New York Times has made adjustments in terms of I've noticed they they've they've been more aggressive with words like falsehood mm -hmm. or lie than they were I think in 2016. I mean, just. So I, I, I have a couple of thoughts on this because I actually have questions for both of you because yeah. I'm, I'm curious about this. First and foremost, I think that there is a belief that um, I think there's a lot of like I as I mentioned, I used to cover sports and there is this this thing you do sometimes where you work the refs where you're like you want the ref to you, you like start calling stuff, call pass interference now. Um, <laughs> But, and I think that sometimes people are looking to papers like the Post or the, um, the Washington Post, New York Times, you know, major outlets, because I think that there are people who are both very angry at newspapers and major media outlets, but they truly believe in major media outlets. And they believe that if the New York Times had published, it published a piece that was like, Donald Trump is a big giant jerky liar, <laughs> then everyone would be like, oh, 
Well, no. the New York Times said. Well, you put it that yeah, way. Right. <laughs> he is a big, giant, jerky liar, the New York Times. And I think that, and I, I totally understand that, because you see that in how the Times has written, when the Times writes about, um, uh, say, like, white nationalists or any number of extremist figures where they're attempting to explain who this person is and put them into a context or something, and then you get a response of, like, well, this, you know, you need to tell, like, the idea seems to be that, like, you need to tell people that this person is bad. Mm. And then in some of these pieces, I'm like, well, they're a Holocaust denier. So it seems like I think that that pretty much implies that. But I also think that there's this, uh, this idea that if the New York Times said this person is bad, then everyone in America would be like, oh, so they're bad. And I think that that, to me personally, I don't think that's how this works anymore. And I would also say, that is not to say that, like, I think that there should be, you know, you should be calling out institutions and individuals at every level without fear or favor. Um, mm -hmm. I, I want to do, you know, a special shout out to the work that a lot of papers in Los Angeles are doing with regard mm -hmm. to the uh, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, which is controlled by a series of actual gangs. Mm -hmm. And the work that they have been doing with regard to, and this has led to journalists having their homes raided by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Mm -hmm. And so like that work is still taking place. The Associated Press has been covering police violence in Louisiana um, and staying on these stories in a really big way. But I think that in how people, especially with national politics, I think mm -hmm. that people who look to these papers and they want these papers to say the powerful thing and everyone to respond to the powerful thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that for a large swath of Americans, they have been inured to the power of those things in which they're, you know, the New York Times could put out a piece, uh, a front page tomorrow that said that Donald Trump is a big giant jerky person and Donald Trump would put on Truth Social that like one of my colleagues ate children and a bunch of people would be like, well, you know, he said, so, okay. But what I think, you know, that, that's a concern for me with how we think about media. It's where, where you use it as both, um, you know, when you're a New York Times best-selling author, but you still want to scream for the New York Times about how it's all fake, and you have both in your Twitter bio. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, it, we have a very convoluted relationship with media, and I, I understand that, but that's something I'm always thinking about of what people want from media and what people expect from media reflects their own belief in media. Mm. But I, I wanted to ask both of you, uh, perhaps Simone, like when we talk about democracy in crisis, I know you, you and I both grew up in, you know, in very white conservative environments. Um, and when I think about my experience, you know, I was a kid in the early 1990s in Ohio and I remember that in Cincinnati, um, there was an, a bill called Issue 3, which uh, removed all protections uh, for LGBT people in the city of Cincinnati. And it, um, you know, every newspaper was like, sounds like a great idea, and it passed broadly. Mm. And so when, you know, I have seen what it looks like when, you know, when democracy is a crisis for your, you, but everybody else seems like they're okay. Hmm. So sometimes when I'm thinking about like, what would it look like if democracy were fine? What would it look like if democracy, right now, if democracy were not in crisis? Because hmm. I think so much of our, our thoughts about how, I think that you hmm. mentioned this and others have, that our thoughts about how things were in the past hmm. 
we're calling back to the halcyon days of the early 70s or like, you know, oh, you know, the great times of the Truman administration, which like, I, I'm just curious as to, I, I don't think we should be looking backwards. I think we should be looking forwards, but I do want to know what does it look like when it's not in crisis? What does democracy look like? What does America look like if everything's, if democracy is cool? <laughs> I think it's an interesting question because one could argue that, um, for many different segments of the American electorate, at some, just how you put it, democracy in crisis for some, not for all. When I talk about democracy being in crisis, though, I am talking about the fundamental institution that this country was built, you know, not built on, because that's slavery, we go all day. <laughs> but I'm, I'm talking about the, you know, free, fair, and open elections, peaceful, peaceful transitions of power. You know, the idea that we can debate economic issues, but we all believe the sky is blue. Mm -hmm. And we currently do not exist in that arena. Mm -hmm. There are some people out there saying the sky is purple. And others are like, well, you know, you know, the sky could be purple. <laughs> and uh, they have a right to not only say the sky is purple, but defend their purple sky rights. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, that is quite dangerous. You know, for my vantage point might be a little different because I was, um, I was like a block and a half away from the Capitol on January 6th. Hmm. I was with the, vice, the then vice president-elect. We were at the Democratic National Committee. Hmm. We were watching the ballots being taken across um, to the floor. Hmm. And as we were doing that, Secret Service came in and they, and they pulled us out of the room hmm. and rushed us out of the building because they said that there's bombs hmm. in the building. They have not been able to find the bombs. There's bombs outside, we have to get you out. Hmm. Come to find out there were bombs also at the Republican National hmm. Committee hmm. and the bombs were lost. Okay, this is real. The people at the Capitol that day went home. People in a grocery store on a Saturday afternoon were gunned down just for being black. Mm -hmm. People in El Paso, Texas at a mall a couple of years ago gunned down just because they were in the Hispanic part of the, of, of, of the state, of the city, which is the entire city. Have you ever been to El Paso? <laughs> like there is, there are things People that don't like what happened, what, what government is doing, they mm. think the response is to take up arms against their government. Mm. A precursor to January 6th was what happened in the Michigan Capitol mm. in response to Governor Gretchen Whitmer's lockdown policies. Mm. You can, I, I think the congressman <laughs> might disagree, but I saw, I, I saw with my own two eyes, heard with my own ears. I have friends who are also state legislators was in Michigan. Inactive and in, in, it was certainly intimidating. Was there was actually no violations of the law. In the Capitol, it's mm -hmm. quite intimidating. Yeah. I would be scared. Mm -hmm. And so when I say that, um, I, I do believe, when I ask, like, is it actually debatable? Mm -hmm. I think that anything less than saying our democracy in crisis is not realizing the actual world that we currently live in. Right, because mm -hmm. I do think that the idea, if you cannot accept, if, we have gotten to a point in which there are people who, are, who not only want to relitigate the 2020 election, they want to do so like, quite literally. Mm -hmm. And the idea of a democracy, it's not a democracy if someone can't lose. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I, I'm curious as to your thoughts. I mean, the amount of times where I have heard an argument on one side of the aisle and I'm like, Boy, gosh, what you're saying right now, I'm pretty sure John Eastman said that like six months ago, like right. where, where there's the, the obverse. And now, granted, they, they can differ in degrees and in, in intensity, yeah. right? Um, but the, what I've heard from folks on, on the right is this belief 
that Republicans just keep losing and losing because we're not strong like the Democrats. And so we, we're, we're so weak-kneed in front of them. And I, I hear It's Democrats... always so funny because there is no one who hates Democrats more than the Democrats. Democrats. <laughs> it's Republicans. aggressive, actually. I'm coming to that next. I'm coming to that next. It's that there's this meme of, um, he's like the, the uh, there's a meme online of um, there's a the, the there's an angry British chef who has a show on Fox where he screams yeah where it's just like you're an idiot sandwich but then like Puts that's two how loaves of bread yeah on the and it's ears, that is how Democrats view other Democrats and mm -hmm. it's always interesting to me because you hear that of like oh but you know we need to fight like the Democrats and do all this and so like what are you talking about no and but that's the I mean half the time. You wish you could just like have the curtain fall in between yeah. the two parties, like mm -hmm. arguing and be like, you see, you yeah. thought it was a mirror. <laughs> you thought it was a yeah. you know. uh, and, and that really becomes my, you know, we're talking about institutional delegitimization. You obviously have, um, you have January 6th and everything that led up to it in terms of undermining confidence in elections. You know, the Democrats would be in a far better position to be like, see Republicans, you're the bad party. If prominent Democrats who lost elections had more frequency of being like, I lost that fair and square, I should have been a better candidate, right? But uh, that obviously didn't result in violence. Mm -hmm. But it's the same type of, I, the election that I trust and respect is the one that I won, and if I didn't, you know, blaming anybody but myself. And that's the case in primaries as well, mm -hmm. right? And some of that is just personally innate psychology, mm -hmm. but it, and again, it had more of a, a valence and sort of a violent consequence on the Republican side of the aisle. I think there is, I have zero faith that that capacity doesn't exist on both sides of the aisle to do something along those lines. And, you know, the thing that terrifies me, we we're talking earlier kind of like mm. the Civil War component. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing that really scares me is if you have, you know, a, what starts off as sort of a peaceful but like aggressive, right? You have, you have two opposing sides who both show up with their guns mm. and something happens and somebody starts something, somebody escalates and escalates and very quickly you wind up with essentially just bodies. Mm. And, and that, was, that was what I'm, I mean, January 6th, if, a, if somebody in the crowd would have fired at law enforcement, law enforcement fires at somebody in the crowd, firing back, I mean, th there are numerous scenarios you can play out where the death toll is is 10 or um, potentially 100 times greater than it was mm -hmm. uh, and i you know we obviously saw um we saw far-right groups reacting to uh and, and i'm just using these as broad catch-alls but like far-right groups showing up at far-left protests you have far-left protesters showing up at far-right protesters like there is there's a lot of people who are just itching mm -hmm. to start something mm -hmm. i don't think they know how it's going to finish no. but they're just they're itching to start the only thing I will I, I will note is, is I was watching January, when I got home and we watched January 6th unfold, in the days after, the thought that crossed my mind was, what if the people that showed up at the Capitol that day were black mm. or Latino? Mm -hmm. would, the, would the outcome have been the same? And the fact that I even had to ask that question, mm. I think illuminates kind of the chasms that exist here. And then I was, um, I was in a conversation with a, an unnamed former Republican governor and who we were talking about January 6th and he said well the real insurrection was the summer of 2020 and I'm like mm, mm. no 
Because I think, I think we throw around, it's just like these terms we throw around. Yeah. Like we throw around the term insurrection, we throw around the term civil war. We were talking before this panel about the actual, like a, a civil war like what we know a civil war to be in, from American perspective, for many reasons will not, it will never be that organized. Right. It, will, it won't happen, like it, it, that's not going to happen again. It will be, if, if anything happens, it will look different and have a different name. But we throw around the term civil war, we're throwing around the term uh, insurrection when these are very specific terms, and I think, and I, I, I personally believe that words matter. Um, you can say that there was an uprising, there was obviously, uh, in some places across the country in the summer of 2020, there was violence, um, buildings were burned, right, but in my opinion, nobody was trying to stop a, you know, there were, there, nobody was trying to stop the peaceful transition of power, no one was trying to disrupt what was happening, people were upset and angry about a thing that has happened many times over the course of history throughout this country to a specific group of people in America. Yeah. And I think to constantly ask people to be peaceful when they are c constantly met with violence just doesn't make sense. Can, well, I, can I, I just jump off of yeah. that real quick? Because mm -hmm. I think one thing that, that I was surprised by, because I think we've all have somewhat of a DC centric, we come from our own places, but we have roles and responsibilities and jobs in Washington. And so we don't view necessarily to the extent that we have disputes or think things are going poorly in Washington, it's usually like, oh, those dang Republicans, oh, those dang Democrats, right? But we don't view the city itself, it can be a point of frustration, but we don't view it as inherently corrupt, just mm -hmm. corruptible. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing that, that struck me in conversations, and it was less, uh, because I was having those some conversations where someone's like, well, you know, why, why are we investigating January 6th and not investigating summer? It's like, okay, well, I mean, there are tangible differences here. Um, but in a lot of the cases, it, there was almost a sense of all of you folks in DC, like, yeah, okay, we're maybe not saying that's good, but there was a little bit of schadenfreude almost of, of just, uh, of a sense of it was very limited and you're being overly dramatic. Now, I was there, like, it was bad. It could have been a lot worse. Like January that is, 6th. yes, yeah. January sixth. That is not something we should kind of go up against. But for a lot of Americans, you know, if they had this sort of romantic vision of DC, like it was a very offensive thing. And that's what I remember feeling that day was just like something sacred being trampled on, mm -hmm. right? Like what gives you the right to try to negate the votes of hundreds of thousands of individuals of you as one? Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, there were a lot of people who weren't excusing January 6th, but felt like what had a much more tangible impact and what felt like more of a trampling mm. was seeing destruction in, in cities mm. and, and seeing buildings being burned, seeing, you know, this, uh, something I, we saw in, and again, just like there were folks who were at January 6th who viewed it as sort of like a fun, oh, this is kind of the last like Trump rally mm. and just kind of sitting around like with the vendors. And they, like you have to dissociate folks who come to do violence. Um, and and the, the folks who showed up in the evening uh, or after dark, after sort of the, the, you know, First Amendment peaceful demonstrators, I mean, those were two very different, different cohorts. Uh, but the, I was struck by the number of folks who felt, didn't feel the emotional attachment to, you know, the, the capital being attacked, but did feel the emotional attachment to seeing businesses in their downtown. Mm -hmm. Like it, it was just sort of on, on a very different emotional plane. But um, I, I think that that's why it's important to think about like, what happened to me 
I mean, on January 6th was, I mean, I live not far away from the Capitol and just seeing, I mean, if you lived in DC, you just remember like, hey, remember like all these places where you like to walk? You can't go there now. It's covered mm -hmm. in Marines. And I remember asking one of the Marines like, how long do you think you're gonna be here? And he was like, honey, I have no idea. Mm. And it just was like this, it was like, oh, this like kind of forever occupation. But the what we're learning through the January 6th hearings, which mm. I think is particularly interesting, because I'm like, mm. there is a way in which you can think about January 6th as being like, you know, crazy people went too far and it could have been much worse, but you know, wasn't it like in comparison, I'm sure mm -hmm. it was fine. But when you hear about like the efforts to stop the certification mm -hmm. of the election mm -hmm. and the degree to which it was, you know, Halloween mm -hmm. of 2020 in which they're like, oh, we're just gonna declare victory no matter what happens. Mm -hmm. And I think that that goes back to thinking about democracy being in danger, especially, you know, what always strikes me is that I think that the older I get, the less I personally would ever want to be president. It seems like a very <laughs> difficult job. <laughs> and the before and after you know, pictures? The, 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 the before and after pictures, like if you look at like Obama in 2007 and Obama in 2016, where it's just like, he just like, I, I want to get out of here. But like the degree to which the, the attempt to hold on to office for, to do what? Mm. Where it's not, it's, it's the idea of like, I, I should have this office, mm. it's mine. Mm. Um, I believe Roger Stone put it uh, as eloquently in video that came out today that possession is nine tenths of the law, mm. so fuck you. Mm. And one, Ever that's, the not, eloquent, that's, uh, not how, that's not how that works. Mm. But also the idea, I think that is the concern mm -hmm. to me, mm -hmm. is that, you, and you can drop all sorts of, eloquent reasonings that, but mm. it all lies on the foundation of if you have a person mm. who believes that they should be the president because mm. they should be the president, even if they lost the election, yeah. especially before they lost the election. Yeah. I think that is where my concern lies. Or governor, or yeah, exactly. State, I, I, uh, or mayor. Yeah. I want to, on that point, I want to get Simone in on something, and I want to pivot uh, to one more question before we move to Q&A. Um, so, Assuming that the stakes are of this moment are high, I mean, so I think it wasn't that long ago that there was this idea that that demo, sort of demographic change was going to deliver permanent advantages to the Democrats, and I think that obviously in recent years that's much less clear. So, you know, the Democratic coalition. One difference it seems to me between the Democrats and Republicans these days, Democrats a, a more unwieldy coalition for our comments about, you know, <laughs> who <laughs> Democrats hating other Democrats, you know. One of the things that, um, and I think it's an important question for, for Princeton Seminary and beyond, is sort of the extent to which persuasion remains on the table, to, to the extent to which you know, sort of the Democrats are trying to persuade people all, who are not already in the coalition to come in. I, I don't know if you saw this article last week. Um, Anand Girid Haradas published this really interesting piece where he said, this is a direct quote from the piece, he said, one of the ironies of our time is that some of the most dangerous and anti-democratic movements have managed to make their causes appear welcoming and make newcomers feel at home, whereas some of the most righteous, inclusive, and just movements give off a feeling of being inaccessible and standoffish. I wonder what you think about that. I mean, I think it's an interesting observation that, uh, depending on what we're talking on, on where we're talking about, I 100% agree. Look, I think the, the the issue is people talk about the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. We're really talking about the apparatus of the mm -hmm. two. Mm -hmm. There's a Republican Party apparatus and there's a Democratic Party apparatus. Mm. This, is, this is how I, I laid it. I wrote a book, mm -hmm. this is how I laid it out of my book. Yeah. 
on the Democratic Party apparatus, the apparatus, think of it as the party committees, the donors, the elected officials. Um, it is the machine, if you will. The apparatus is fueled, could be solar power, wind, gas, whoever you want to be today, okay? Water power. It is fueled by the factions. And if we took the time here, we could name a hundred factions mm -hmm. that are associated with the Democratic Party apparatus. Um, there are also, um, entities that are not factions, but apparatus adjacent. Mm -hmm. I would argue the Sunrise Movement is an apparatus adjacent mm -hmm. movement to the Democratic Party apparatus, mm -hmm. right? They do not think of themselves as big D Democrats, but work in concert sometimes with the Democratic Party mm -hmm. apparatus, but also in conflict with. Mm -hmm. um, the Black Lives Matter movement, right? An apparatus adjacent mm -hmm. movement, not a big D Democratic movement. Mm -hmm. there, we could, do a we could sit here and take the time, we could come up with a hundred different factions, mm -hmm. sub-factions, so on and so forth. When you look at the Republican Party apparatus, same thing, the machine is the, the donors, the elected officials, the party committees, so on and so forth. But the, the fuel that powers the apparatus, there are far few factions. Mm. There are far less factions. It used to just be you had, I mean, you, uh, we can name, I, I would say, conservatives, mm -hmm. um, your traditional mm -hmm. Republicans. You have your Trump Republicans, your mm -hmm. Tea Party Republicans, your QAnon folks now, okay? <laughs> used to be apparatus adjacent, honey, moving into being mm -hmm. a actual faction of the Republican Party apparatus. Um, I think some of these adjacent movements, we could name, you, you could name some of these paramilitary mm -hmm. groups that have popped up in the January 6th investigation, so on and so forth. So with that being said, the reason, mm -hmm. I, I think you have to understand the diversity of sentiment that, mm -hmm. that fuels mm -hmm. the Democratic Party apparatus, um, it changes depending, mm -hmm. like uh, throughout time. Mm -hmm. At one point in time, the, the, the unions held the power mm -hmm. in the Democratic Party mm -hmm. apparatus. That is not necessarily true right now. The, the rank and file are not Democrats mm -hmm. in many places. But the, part, the leadership of these unions are, that's one example. So I just think that it, it was wrong for, first of all, anyone to assert. And you know, I was, uh, in, in 2012, I was about to graduate college. So mm -hmm. I watched these people get up at these press conferences and say, Oh, Republicans really have to figure it out and lose because all the Latinos are going to vote for Democrats. Mm. Crazy to even think that you could assert mm. that. Mm -hmm. Much like white people in America, mm -hmm. black and brown people are diverse as well. There's mm -hmm. not a, there's that you know mm. there is a diversity of sentiment mm -hmm. in 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 the Hispanic community, and it's not just in Florida, mm. South mm -hmm. Florida, right? Because mm -hmm. when they oftentimes yeah. we talk mm -hmm. about oh, mm -hmm. but South Florida, yeah, is different. it's like no, Cubans. Rio Grande Valley, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like uh, there is places all over this country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would argue the same thing for the African American community, mm -hmm. and so I think it is important. I believe that you know I'm mm -hmm. a recovering Democratic strategist now. I just you know, talk about <laughs> it on TV. But I believe that for Democrats to be successful, they have to view um, individuals that they would, pieces of these factions mm. that you often hear referred to as base voters mm. for the Democratic Party apparatus, you have mm. to view them as persuadable. Yeah. And view these individuals as persuadable and treat them as such. Yeah. Just treat everybody how you would treat these independent voters, these suburban moms in a midterm election. <laughs> that, yeah. that would be my directive in order to be successful because what will happen mm. is people will not want to identify as big D or big R anymore. Mm -hmm. they, they, they just want to be individuals. Yeah. Increasing number of people will, are saying now we'll be independent. Young people, younger than us on this panel, say I don't, they don't, they're saying they don't believe in, in systems mm -hmm. and the system, the, political, yeah. the system of political parties. Um, they feel like democracy is failing. We need young people to believe in the system because we need them to participate, not yeah. just as voters, yeah. but as operatives, as yeah. individuals. And if, we, and if yeah. that does not, I believe in the system, because I've had the opportunity to participate in it, and I've seen 
that my participation can change things. So you're speaking to something that I think is really key for us, and I, and I want to I want to sort of in my part of the questions uh, with this one, you know, it's thinking about a particular institution, churches, and yeah. I mean we, you know, we here have, uh, you know, we're training seminarians to be leaders in church and society. Um, folks in my field, you know, have been writing a lot about uh, the role that Christianity's played in sort of getting us to this point. But I wonder, uh, I mean, sort of maybe shorter answers, so we everyone get some other folks in too. Um, could you imagine, I mean, what would be constructive co contributions that faith communities, that religious institutions might play in this moment uh, for American democracy? And do you have any thoughts for seminarians who are, who are thinking about going out into the world, being leaders in church, leaders in society? What does it look like to, to make a, a positive, constructive contribution to a society that, as we've been talking about for the last hour, has many challenges on its hands? My short answer would be that the reality is that there are religious institutions and religious people who are playing a role mm -hmm. currently, a substantial outsized role, and it's one subset. You know, we're talking about, I'm talking about evangelical Christians, if you'd like mm -hmm. me to be specific. <laughs> and so the idea that faith communities are not currently mm -hmm. playing a role, they, they are. Yeah. And I think that seeing that, mm -hmm. other um, individuals need to make a decision about their participation as well. Mm -hmm. A subset of the faith community has already made a decision and they have taken action. Mm -hmm. They have just not talked about it. They have been about it with their dollars, with their votes, and with their congregations for mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, um, to understand that that is actively happening now, and we can, we can talk about it, but we also have to actively participate in the work. Yeah. I think, uh, actually, the second word you said, mm. community. Yeah. I think that for many people, I mean, first and foremost, from what we've seen from polling of evangelicals, which is, it's complicated because evangelical used to mean, like, do you evangelize? You have a very mm -hmm. specific understanding of scripture. Do mm -hmm. you believe in these things? And now you do the polling, and there are, like, a ton of evangelicals who don't believe that Christ is God. And I'm like, oh, boy. Okay, well, <laughs> um, that's a secondary, that's a, that's, a, that's a book to get into. But I think that what, what people find, I mean, I think people look in politics for the same things that people used to find in faith communities. Mm. Not the faith part, the community mm. part, mm. where the idea that, like, you know, I, I remember when my sister got married, uh, the priest who married her, like he, came, like he was someone we'd known in our family for years. Mm. That was someone, he was a part of our community and we were part of that community. Mm. And yes, it was a community in which like, you know, like any community, there were, pe like, there were people who drove you crazy, but it was just like, well, we'll see them every Sunday for the rest of our <laughs> lives. So there's nothing we can do about it. But I do think like we're in the midst of, I think the, you know, as technology shifts, we're in a gradual shifting of what community looks like, but for many people, they have no real community. Mm. They don't have no. people who their mm. relationships exist beyond one specific valence. They mm. have like politics friends mm. or sports friends, but mm -hmm. they don't have like a wraparound community of people mm. who it's like, I am here for you in all of these other respects. And so I think that, you know, if, you're, if your seminarians would go, you know, have a faith community where also people could go bowling or watch <laughs> a sporting event or just go do something and be a consistently available. Mm -hmm. I think that would do so much for people, even if people don't, th even if it doesn't lead to anything. Mm -hmm. That community, I think, is so important. Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. I, I 
really could not agree more with that statement. I mean, I think that sense, you know, okay, pandemic, um, we, we shut down, um, you know, churches, we shut down sporting events. So the places where folks were going to get their meeting, the places where folks were going to get their entertainment, uh, there was a vacuum that was filled by politics because politics was still going on mm -hmm. and politics was the boom industry in the pandemic. And the, the need to kind of have- It's not a good boom industry. It's not a good mm -hmm. boom industry, no. No, I, I mean, I am, I'm, I will be so proud of the day when real estate prices in the Washington DC mm. metro area decouple from like mm. national real estate trends, mm. or, or sorry, or like coupled to national real estate trends mm. and rise and fall. No mm. offense if you guys own property there, but I'm, <laughs> I'm rooting for it to decline. Um, but it's just a very, it's very, easy to think that somebody on the opposite side of the country who doesn't look like you, who maybe didn't have the same background as you, that you can't find at least superficial ways of, of finding a similarity. Mm. It's easy to think the worst of that person to let suspicion, to let paranoia and, and sort of a, an assumption of bad mm. faith or bad intention, mm. you know, get projected. Mm. It's really hard to do that with somebody who sits next to you in the pew every Sunday, mm. right? Uh, not impossible, <laughs> definitely not impossible, but more difficult in just building those, those bonds of trust uh, those those kind of personal relationships. I mean, it is very difficult to have a, a sorry. It's very different to have a difficult conversation with somebody that you've just met or somebody you've known for a very long time, mm. right? And you, I mean, who's better to change your minds on a, a, duff, a mm. tough? Right. And, and we've seen topic. again and again that like, I mean, just to speak very quickly mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. that article, mm -hmm. I think we've seen again and again, even in that article, examples of persuasion working. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we see it time and time again. And if anyone's ever had to have like a series of difficult conversations with family members mm -hmm. about something, mm -hmm. like it turns, it's not gonna be fun, mm -hmm. but it, and it's gonna take a really long mm -hmm. time, but mm -hmm. you can see it happen over a, over a period of time. And I think that a mistake people make is that when they just say people are just unpersuadable, that you can't mm -hmm. do that. Mm -hmm. When I'm it's like, people are complicated and mm -hmm. they've changed their minds and they can change them back. And I think mm -hmm. that, you know, I've seen a host of people for whom something takes place and they shift their minds radically about something. I think like, let people be people, give them community and see what happens. But, but have that be a two-way street on right. the persuasion yeah. side, right? right? Because you started off saying, yeah. we don't presume to know all the answers. Yes. We should never presume. Exactly. We've never met a normal person. Nope. That goes both <laughs> ways. I guess my last point on that would be, yeah. sometimes though it's about understanding. Like you, I, uh, when we talk about having a lot of times, it, it was it was during the height of the Trump era where I would go to events on college campuses and students would say, how do I talk to my family members? <laughs> they don't understand. And I'm like, well, first, mm. you should not start with the assumption that they don't mm. they don't know what they're talking about. Mm. And I think that we, we talk down to people sometimes mm. that don't agree with us. Mm. And I think that, you know, I'm a, obviously, as you can see from this panel, I'm a very passionate person. <laughs> but I also like think of myself as quite compassionate mm. as well. And I think we just have to get to a place of understanding with yeah. people. And maybe that will lead to persuasion mm. at some points, but maybe it won't. Yeah. And you need, you need to make a decision if you're okay with that and if you'd like to be in relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, so there's a question from the audience that I think picks up on this exact thread. Uh, two, two questions that are kind of related. One is how do you begin a productive dialogue across lines of difference if you can't agree on the facts? And, and relatedly, can any of the speakers share how they both embrace conviction of belief and open-mindedness to different points of view? Well, okay. I would say that um, one of the great things about conviction and belief is that you are then open to other points of view because mm -hmm. you know that like you are not actually a boat in a storm. Mm -hmm. You are the lighthouse. Mm -hmm. 
The boats are around you, but you're there, and it's all going to be fine. Mm. And I think that that's what I, um, whenever people, like we ha we've had all these recent conversations about people attempting to remove books or ban books mm. from school libraries. And um, one of the things I keep thinking about is how people think, how persuadable pe other people think other people are. Mm. That if you read a book about gay people, you will become gay, which I'm like, no, that's not <laughs> how that works. Or even, you know, I, I see this a lot. Um, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Nazi propaganda before and after the Battle of Stalingrad. If you want to talk about that later, mm. we can. Um, but I, I remember that there was this idea that like, um, certain books or texts that like they would just be mm. so innately tempting that they would just uh, lead you towards Nazism. Mm. And I just kept thinking like you are giving Adolf Hitler way too much mm. credit. Mm. And I think that so much of our conversation, it, it, it presumes so much about your own lack of faith, lack of foundation. Mm. You can be open-minded. Mm. There are lots of, I, I call it, um, sometimes I call it like kind of just be a really cool dad. You have your own point of view, mm. your own perspectives, but other people have theirs, mm. and that's fine. And they'll try to like convince you of them, mm. and that's great. But at the end of the day, you're a cool dad. Mm. You're gonna work in your workshop. Mm. You're, gonna watch the fo you're gonna watch football, and it's all gonna be fine. And I, I think a lot about how, <laughs> you know, we have, I, I find a lot of certainty in my beliefs. You know, I, of course I've gone through crises of faith, but that's a me problem. That's not a God problem. God has remained consistent. I'm just wandering around being a person. <laughs> and I, I think to the question about talking across, you know, when you can't agree on the facts, I think that some people, um, if we've learned anything, it's that mm. some people are, no, very few people mm. are motivated by facts. Mm. Mm -hmm. People are motivated by their own deepest desires and deepest fears. Mm. And if you can understand what those are for some people. Mm. Um, I used to do a lot of reporting on explaining QAnon and other mm. conspiracy theories. And there are specific, one of the interesting things I learned is that Conspiracy theories mm. don't actually have like um, a left-right axis exactly. Mm -hmm. They have an in-group, out-group mm -hmm. axis mm -hmm. where you believe that if the conspiracy theory gives you access to the special knowledge that other people don't have, mm -hmm. and the more people tell you it's not true, the more it becomes convincing that mm -hmm. you actually do know something. But if you get down to the baseline of it, you are someone, you know, some of these conspiracy mm -hmm. theories are about your fear of others, and it mm. just starts adding on to theirs, mm. but also your deep love and abiding care for mm. your own children or for mm. children mm. in general. And I think that even if, if you don't agree on facts, which I think it's very clear that for many people they don't, I think that we can find camaraderie in caring, uh, in mm. caring about and being afraid of many of the same things. Mm. Where you see people, you know, you, you think about people who are seeking asylum in this country mm. and they're carrying their child through, you know, hundreds of miles and being mm. forced into the most dangerous situations because mm. they are trying to escape violence that would assuredly cost them their lives and the lives of their children. Mm. And I think about that and I think about like that is a, that's a fear and a love mm. that I think we can all find caring together. And mm. I think that so much of that, like, you know, I've had a lot of conversations 
of people who believe a lot of crazy things. Mm. But every single one of those conversations, I understood that we were likely afraid of similar things, mm -hmm. afraid of being rejected, afraid of being alone, mm -hmm. afraid of being pushed away from our community, mm -hmm. afraid of something happening to someone in our community or our mm -hmm. family. And we shared care, like we loved someone. We mm -hmm. loved people very deeply. And you know, mm -hmm. this is why it's very painful for the children of people who are very involved in mm -hmm. conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. But I think that finding that union of caring and finding that union of like, you know, we don't agree on the same facts, but there's something deeper than facts. Mm. It's mm. facts matter, to be very clear. <laughs> but I think that finding that, because sometimes mm. if you get in a fact off with someone, you're in, you're in hell. Mm. And <laughs> I think that it's better to be like, you know, what are you afraid of and who do you love? Yeah, I love uh, that. And I'll, I'll be honest, I get a lot of rather crazy things. Oh, yeah, I mean, there, there'll do. be like a two week period where, you know, some issue will rise up and it's the World Health Organization is trying to invade the United States. And, mm -hmm. and then you, and I-, I Again? I, Thank you for that, keep trying. Where's Tedros? But I'll, I'll fall into the trap of, of just reacting to the facts. Uh, thank you yeah. for all groaning <laughs> at that. Um, but wanting to basically say, okay, present me the information. Let me better understand where this is coming from. Okay, it's coming from Israel World News Site 24365.us. <laughs> okay, never heard of that, but uh, um, it, rather than realizing that the the reason why there there's a fear that's underpinning why they're grasping mm -hmm. onto that, mm -hmm. and in saying no, I. I also do not want the U.S. to lose its sovereignty. You know, mm -hmm. that is important. However, I don't believe that this is probably that mm -hmm. thing that's going to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge is so much on the conspiracy and misinformation side of the house. I mean, it's not a supply issue. It's a demand issue. Mm -hmm. And you, you have that sense of having access to forbidden knowledge, mm -hmm. of really understanding what's mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. um, and also, frankly, of, of their being ordered to the world mm -hmm. in a mm -hmm. way that, you know, ideally you find order in the world in a, you know, benevolent mm. uh, deity or force. Yeah. Uh, less ideally, but still an ordered world is one that's defined by malevolent mm. uh, entities or mm -hmm. forces. And, and those are really, it's a hard thing to, to then come to a common semblance. And, and to your point of when you're talking about the facts, you're getting into hell, the amount of times where it will be, it's the feeling that matters. It's sort of the narrative that matters. I mean, uh, the amount of conversations I've had with somebody where I'm like, okay, so you, you're passionate about issue X. Okay, what, what specific facts? Or you want me to vote for this bill? What, what part of it do you think will be most operative? It's like, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, and, and by God, mostly because of the way the legislation just kept evolving, but the, the voting rights or voter protection things that, that were on the floor last year. Um, and it was like maybe four or five dozen different issue areas, and there were three different bills, and you had to have like X, you know, no zero, it's not in that, it's not in that. Mm. Um, but when we talk, you mentioned earlier about just like words matter, like the semantic slippage. I mean, I take my colleagues to task on this on the Republican side of the aisle, where it's like, can we stop comparing things about to the Holocaust? You know yeah. what was the Holocaust? The, the Holocaust, Holocaust, right? That's it. <laughs> but but the, the way in which, and, and we've seen mm. this when like an accusation will get thrown, and if it's thrown mm. sort of imprecisely, mm. it's like, oh, well, if he was racist for doing that, it doesn't, it doesn't make the, the more innocent act worse 
it makes the worst act look mm -hmm. more innocent and, and sort of create this leveling factor that just drives me up a wall. But, mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, I'm, mm. well, I'll just, I'll close with saying, I mean, I had one guy come to me and say, he was very worried that there were concentration camps being built in Wyoming for Republicans. Mm. And looked into it. I knew someone to talk to in Wyoming. It was not the case, understandably, <laughs> but, but I understand that fear, right? Mm. I mean, you, you, you fear that there are things out of your control mm. And at the end of the day, I was able to reassure him. I'm like, no matter who's building the camps, I'm probably going to wind up in them. So I am very, very vested in making sure that doesn't happen. Mm. We got to wrap up. I want to let someone do. Uh, oh no, please. Ask. I wanted you to get one more question in. I'll be quiet if you can ask another question. Well, I, I think we, I think we're out of time. Uh, Are we out of time? We're out of time. I think. Well, I don't know if I'm going to answer this question because I think it has been thoroughly answered, and yeah. I, my, my understanding piece is what I wanted to contribute there, yeah. but. I think as we have these conversations regularly, I feel like there are lots of people asking people to do things that they would not do themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, like, I think that there are regularly people asking people to mm. hop out there, take positions that they would not do themselves. Mm. And I think what's so great about this panel mm. um, is that an authenticity mm. that folks bring to the conversation. Mm. And I, your point about um, Democratic candidates who say, oh, they didn't lose. And I, I think that's so important. And I remember in 2016 when mm. I worked for Senator Sanders mm. and he lost to Secretary Clinton in the primary, mm. um, there were people on our campaign, mm. uh, progressives very loudly out there in America, mm. saying that Hillary Clinton stole the election from Bernie Sanders. Mm. Um, and. Senator Sanders didn't say anything about it. He didn't mm. say yes, she did, but he didn't say no, she didn't. He'd say mm. quiet, and they let it foment. It was getting actually quite mm. bad mm -hmm. to the point where they were concerned about what was gonna happen at the convention that year. Mm. And I stood up there and said, that's not true. Yeah. No one stole the election we lost. Yeah. I was there, it happened. People mm. have to come together and move on, and there are people that were quite upset. Mm. That I said that. Mm. People that you know, well, people that I've worked with for years, that I built relationships mm. with in progressive politics, and I think that as you, because you all continue with this series about mm. Mm. democracy and um, the mm. faith community's role in what is currently happening, mm. I think it's quite important to understand that, like speaking up, mm. can mm. absolutely make a make a difference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Making the decision mm. to organize and strategize and act could. Mm save a life or frankly our democracy mm. and if one piece mm. of the faith community is is willing to speak up and act in a way that um i would argue does not better mm. uh move our democratic republic forward mm. and other pieces of the faith community are not willing to do that mm. I, I i think folks have to stay, take take a step back and say well what are we doing here mm -hmm. and so i would i would issue a challenge in my final comment mm. um uh, I will end with, we all saw the conversation, the, the hearings of mm. uh, now Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. She was going through her confirmation hearings and mm. um, the QAnon conspiracy yeah. theories popped up and they were trying to basically mm. say she was a pedophile. And mm. um, I'm on this listserv of mm. black women in political communications. Mm. And one of the women on the listserv sent a note mm. during that week and said, we've all, we've all had the look on our face that mm. Judge Jackson has. And she told us a story. And in the story that she told, she talked about how when she was in her master's program. She was the only um, black woman in the entire school, not mm. just her discipline, but the entire school of this program. Um, and she went to her advisor once and was complaining just about, you know, her experiences that she was mm. having. She was lamenting. And her advisor um, told her a story about, a story about Phyllis Wheatley. Mm. And Phyllis Wheatley, who was uh, the first black woman to publish poetry, mm. before she published 
her poems, she was mm. put on trial. Mm. Because so they thought she didn't write they it. They thought she didn't mm. write it. She mm. was put on trial by, you all enjoy this, mostly a group of um, Harvard-educated white men. <laughs> so not y'all. Emphasis on the Harvard. Emphasis on the Harvard, yeah. folks. Emphasis on the Harvard. <laughs> and they put her on trial for weeks and days, and they questioned her until she could prove mm. that she had actually written the words that were in this book that her name was on. Mm. And only after she could prove mm. to this group of people who questioned her was then she allowed she was allowed to publish. And so mm. the, the, my friend, she wrote this in this note to us and said that her advisor told her this story and said, um, you know, people are going to try to steal from you. They're going to try to steal your words. They're going to question your mm. ability, your authenticity. Mm. Mm, you're, go you're essentially going to forever be on trial, but now what are you going to do with that? Yeah. What, are, what, what, are you, you, what are you going to do? How are yeah. you going to answer? And I think the faith community has a, has a role, an outsized role that they could be playing mm. in the fermentation and preservation of our democracy, and we could all be doing more. Simone, I, I, I think, you know, you just made my series by bringing up Phyllis Wheatley as a historian of American Christianity. I mean, come on. This is, I, I didn't have that on my bingo card for this, but I am so delighted. Uh, we're, we're out of time. I think, you know, we've seen uh, deep differences in the conversation, but I, I, I heard from all of you at some sense, I, I love this for our students, uh, the sense of the opportunity to create communities, places where people get to know one another as human beings, common fears, common loves, that sort of resonated across, I think, all of your, your comments. I just can't thank the three of you enough for bringing all of yourselves into this conversation and really, truly, uh, an extraordinary launch for this, this series. So thank you all. Let's, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.